At times, I wish I was an artist. You know, the kind of artist that just with, with his or her two hands can make something that makes the rest of the world stop and stare in awe and wonder, be it a, a painting or a sculpture or something else. And I marvel at those who've been given the gifts to do that. You know, for example, uh, one of the great sculptures of all time is Michelangelo's Pieta, which is in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I've never been there, never seen it in person, but I would love to. Considered one of the great works of Michelangelo. Do you know, he made this when he was 22 years old. What were you doing at 22? Or you want to talk about modern artists, there's a, there, there's an, a, a painter, he paints in oils, his name is Len Jun. And he is considered to be one of the most gifted painters alive today. That's an oil painting that you see. It looks like a photo. His work is considered to be the most photorealistic paintings that exist. It's incredible. If you zoom in on it, if you were to zoom in on it, you can see the individual kind of hairs and strands of the sweater in that painting. It's absolutely incredible. You know, if, if I tried to make a work of art with my own two hands, uh, it would be a work of art, all right, but it would go in the Bad Work of Art Hall of Fame, which is an actual thing I looked it up. I, I wish I could make things with my own two hands that cause the world to stop and, 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 and stare in awe and wonder, but I can't. And the reason I bring that up is because as we continue this walk through the book of Colossians and we look at the second half of chapter 1, what we get is, is Paul saying to this early church that Jesus is the artist behind all things. Uh, the, the wonder of creation, the glory of the church, all of it and more. Jesus is the artist behind it all. It's, all. it's all the creation of his mind, the work of his hands, and it declares his glory. It's, it's all about him. Uh, in, in fact, what Paul says is this, that, that everything that we see is by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Everything. Let's look again at how Paul says it. Picking up in verse 15, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So if you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So he's giving Jesus credit for creation itself. Not only that, but whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of the structures that mankind has created that we, we, we drop our jaws at in awe of our own abilities, well, Jesus ultimately gets credit for that too. All things were created through him and for him. I'll explain what that means in a moment. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Think again about an artist. Think about a sculpture. Before that sculpture sits in a museum, it exists only in the mind of the artist. Before anything is crafted, it only lives up here or in here. And yet by the will of the artist, it begins to exist. When Paul says all things exist by him, it's because he's saying Jesus has chosen to allow all things to exist. And then once the artist grabs the tool or puts their hands on the clay, something physical starts to form. Through the artist's skill and ability, something comes to life. That's what Paul is getting at when he says all things come through him, through the handiwork, through the, the hands-on action of Jesus. All things that you marvel at have come to be. 
And then once that work of art is established and it's created and it sits in a museum and people gather around it and their jaws drop and they say, wow, that's amazing. So long as it stands, it speaks of the glory and the artistry and the genius of the one who made it. Sure, the art itself is a gift to the general public, but it speaks of the skill of the artist itself. And so when Paul says all things exist for him, that's what he's talking about. All this stuff that Jesus has created, has willed into being, that's incredible and amazing, all of it exists for him. It's a testament to his power and his might and his love and his skill and his glory and his ability. It exists for him. All things by him, through him, and for him. And in the text we just read, Paul mentions two things in particular. He mentions the beauty of creation, and then he mentions the church. And he's saying, Jesus is the artist behind it all. What are the most beautiful places in the world, in your opinion? For me, the height of Jesus' handiwork in creation is found in two spots on the map. One, Banff, Alberta, Canada. And two, the Lauterbrunnen Valley in Switzerland. I know you've got your list. That's at the top of mine. But those two spots on the map, that, that's the height of the glory and the beauty of creation. That's the best work Jesus has done in my mind. And then also the church. Jesus is the artist behind that. I think the church is most beautiful when it is growing despite difficulty, despite even persecution. I think of the church, the Christian church that is growing right now in mainland China, despite being technically illegal, despite persecution. There are people meeting in homes, hungry to gather around the scriptures and to be fed the Lord's Supper, and they're willing to die for it, and the church is growing. Or I think of our own church right now deciding to use its gifts, its talents, and its abilities to meet the needs of other people on another part of the world who right now are in Kenya hosting vision clinics, giving sight to the blind, and sharing the message of Jesus. That is the beauty of the church at work. And again, what Paul says is all of that goes back to Jesus. All of it is through him and by him and for him. All of it comes back to him. Now, why is this important? Why did Paul need to write to this small church in the western part of Turkey, in this kind of backwater town named Colossae, why did he need to write to them and tell them, you know, Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. Why did he need to tell them that? Had they forgotten it? Well, long story short, apparently... We don't know a ton about what was happening in Colossae, but from this letter and some others, and then also from some historical record, what we do know is that there were, there were teachers kind of on the tail of, of the true Christian teachers coming into towns like Colossae and trying to undo the teaching of the gospel, trying to undo the truth about who Jesus is. Uh, they came in and they undermined two specific teachings about Jesus, the, the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and also the personal nature of Jesus. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. But it went like this. These churches would get established like they did in Colossae, and then someone would come in and say, hey, you've been told it all wrong. In fact, Jesus is not God. Jesus is of God, but he's not God. He doesn't have that much authority. He doesn't have that much credibility. He's not the big guy. He's like the vice president, not the president, which has implications, major implications. 
Or they would say things like this. Yeah, Jesus is great, but you haven't been told the full picture. There's a lot about Jesus and who he is and what he teaches and what he's accomplished for the world that is hidden from you, has not been told to you. In fact, not all of you will be able to grasp it. There's this secret knowledge that only some people can understand. And I, this false teacher who's come in, I can unlock it for you at a price. And then some would come in and say, yes, Jesus is great, but he's not nearly the personal artist that you think he is. He is distant. He is distracted. And though he has saved the world, he doesn't care much for you personally. So these teachings and others would come in and would rob these young Christians of their confidence in faith, their joy that they're supposed to have as a result of their faith, and their, their clarity and understanding just who Jesus is. And then into that confusion and lack of clarity and lack of confidence and lack of joy, these same teachers would, would pounce and they would say, oh, but, but you can be confident and you can have joy once again if you give me everything you have. If you give me power in this church and also if you give me virtually all the money and resources that you have. And the thing is, is that these churches, many of them gladly went along with it because they were hungry for the confidence and the peace and the joy that comes from knowing and encountering the one true God. So all of this confusion was created and then into that confusion went all this effort from these young believers to try and reestablish a sense of peace and understanding about who God is. And so that's what Paul is writing to, to try and try and save them from that confusion. Now, now why is this important for us today? Well, it's important for you and me today because the the, the same thing happens. You and I, even as as, as modern, present-day followers of Jesus, we still have our understanding of who Jesus is often confused or easily rattled or quickly shaken. It could be from any number of outside sources who come to you and say, hey, the real secret to life is this, or hey, the real meaning of life is that. It could be just your own seeds of doubt and and concern that that well up within you in a difficult season of life, and it makes you go, I don't really know who God is or what I believe or if any of this really even matters. You've been there. You've watched something on television or had a conversation with a friend or you've sat alone in the quiet with your own thoughts, your own fears, and your own wrestlings, and all of a sudden, all the certainty, all the confidence, all the joy, all the peace that you're supposed to have by virtue of being connected to Jesus, all of it is just gone. It's the same thing. Same thing. Just to illustrate it, let, let, me, let me show you like four common misunderstandings of God that you and I easily slip into in today's day and age. The first would be this, and it's a similar one to the first century. The idea that, that, that God is real, but he's distant and he's distracted. God is real, but he's kind of like that bad babysitter your parents used to hire who sat on the couch and scrolled her phone the whole time and barely remembered to feed you anything. God is real, but he doesn't pay much attention to you. And so, and so in order to have a sense of peace and stability in life, if God is distant and distracted, then it's all on you. Be the best person you possibly can so that if God happens to look up and see you, he sees a good guy or a good gal doing the best they can. One of the other common errors and misunderstanding that we easily slip into in our understanding of God, in our grasp of the person and work of Jesus Christ, is this. An understanding that God is angry and vengeful. You know, God does get angry. 
And justice is certainly an attribute of God's character, and it's something that he, he promises in the very end. He's going he's to bring judgment and justice to the world, but it's not the fullness of who God is. But it's easy for people to fall into this understanding that all God is is angry and vengeful and out for justice. Don't make him mad. It's kind of like when your dad would come home mad and your mom would look at you and the other kids and be like, mm -mm -mm, smiles on everybody's faces because he's looking to kick the dog. And if you're in his way, you're the dog. And if that's your understanding of God, that he's angry and vengeful, then you live your whole life in fear, trying to get a sense of peace. Look, if I just don't cause any problems for anybody, then my life will be okay. Another common misunderstanding of God is this that God is simply affirming and applauding all that he sees. It's a common one today. Now, does God love a lot about you? Absolutely. He loves you as a whole person. But does he love a lot of things about you, attributes, characteristics? 100% he does. But it's easy for us to fall into this line of thinking that God is only affirming and only encouraging. In that sense, God is like the friend who's not really a friend when you ask them, does this outfit look okay? To the white shoes go with the blue slacks? And they're like, yep, yeah, absolutely, it's a great look, go for it. They think loving you is lying to you and telling you what you want to hear. There, there are many who slip into this view of God that says, look, he's only affirming and he's only encouraging. And if that's your view of God, in order to have a sense of peace, then, then what you do is you indulge all your impulses and life becomes about satisfying all your desires and looking up to the heavens and hearing God say, keep going, it's great, I have no notes. And then lastly, one that we fall into is this. And it's a close cousin to the one I just mentioned. It's a notion of God that, um, that says that God is compliant to you. He's essentially your employee. In this misunderstanding of the person and work and nature of God, God becomes functionally the genie from Aladdin given to you. And in order to get a sense of peace in this world, if God is compliant, if he's kind of under your employ, then, then what you do is you spend your life trying to figure out the right way to, to rub the lamp so that God will do all the things that you want. You've got to pray the right way, live the right way, so that God will do the things that you want. But, but all of these views of God are profoundly erroneous. None of them will save you. None of them will satisfy you. None of them. But since we're reflecting on them, let me ask you, when you find yourself wandering from the truth of who God actually is in Jesus Christ, which of those four misunderstandings do you trend toward? I'll, I'll tell you mine. Mine is the affirming and encouraging God. Again, does God love a lot about Matt Popovitz? He certainly does. But he also wants to change me and mature me and grow me and challenge me. And if all he ever does is encourage and affirm, then there's no growth and there's no new formation of character or deepening of my faith. But when I'm wandering from the truth, I don't, I don't bring to God anything that I think he might object to. I just look up to him and say, tell me what I want to hear, buddy. Tell me that everything's okay and to just keep going. What about you? Where do you go? Or maybe you're here and you're new or newish to Christianity and you've got some assumptions about the character and nature of God. Uh, which of those four categories fits the assumptions that you brought with you today about who God is? Now, into this kind of misunderstanding 
steps Paul and his letter to the people in Colossae, and he's writing to them and saying, no, you are, you are being sold a lie. You have, been, you have been pulled into misunderstanding about the character of God and the nature of God. You've been sold a lie about Jesus. Jesus is not any of these things. Jesus is all-powerful and all-personal. Jesus has all the power and authority of God. All things are by him, through him, and for him. And he's all personal. It's his hands who have molded and shaped creation. His hands who have brought forth the church. He's the artist behind it all. And how powerful and how personal is Jesus? Well, this is the third thing that Paul mentions in this portion of his letter. He says he's used all that power and all of that personal effort and touch to transform you. He's used his power and his personal touch to save you and to secure your future. You. Look again at what Paul says. Picking up at verse 19. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So there's a break between creation and the creator. But Jesus Christ, because the fullness of God, the fullness of God is within him. Jesus Christ, through his own death, is able to bridge that gap, to erase that fissure, to, to dissolve that disconnect and bring all things back into a right relationship with God, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he did this through dying so that there would be life for everything. And you, now he's talking to you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you who were once on the other side of that chasm doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled, not through your doing, but through his body of flesh by his death. So you, you are made right reconciled to God through his death, not your doing, in order to present you, in the end, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God, in his fullness, came into this world, shed his own blood to make you right with him. He didn't send a second command. He didn't send one of his people to get it done. He didn't just shoot you a text and say, hey, there's some things we got to figure out. No, he said there's only one way to do this. The fullness of God will come to earth and live and die and then rise from the grave for you. And now you, though you often don't feel it, though you struggle to believe it, you have a right relationship with God. It's full. It's complete. It's all good. And why did he do this? Well, one, so you could be in his family, but also you, so you could know that your future is secure. Verse 23, it says that in the very end, Jesus is going to come back. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, when he comes back and he establishes this perfect and whole and recreated existence, there's going to be a moment when those who are attached to Jesus, who have faith in Jesus, who've been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus, we all get a chance in that new creation to kind of stand on the stage and be presented to the new creation. And when we're presented in this new creation, we're going to be found not to be sinful and broken and struggling and anxious and full of doubts. 
No, because of the work of Jesus, when it's our turn to step on the stage and go, ta-da, it's me, the pronouncement is going to be, you are good, you are holy, you are pure, you are loved, you are complete, you are whole because of Jesus. He did all of that to save you and then secure a future where you are pronounced to the new creation as being utterly complete, good, whole, and loved. That's why he did this. That's why he did all of it. And now, as a person who knows that and believes that, that you are the work of Jesus' hands, that he is the artist who not only crafted creation, who brought forth the church, but who has made you, saved and secured a future for you with his own two hands, now that you know that you are his masterpiece, your very existence, like the Pieta in in, in St. Peter's Basilica, declares the glory of the artist. Your very existence declares the genius and the artistry and the goodness of God. Now imagine for a second how overwhelming of a message that had to have been for the small, struggling, persecuted church in this small town in the western part of Turkey called Colossae. I hope that that message hits your heart and you feel like, my goodness, I am seen, loved, touched, created. I'm a masterpiece of God through the work of Jesus Christ. I hope that that touches your heart and fills you with joy. But, But imagine for a second that if you're a member of this tiny church in the earliest days of Christianity, how overwhelming that had to be. This was a small church, a nobody group of people culturally, in a nobody town, in a world that was ruled by Rome, which was miles, miles, hundreds, hundreds of miles away. They would never travel there, never see it. The only media they ever had, they didn't have cell phones, didn't have televisions, it goes without saying, the only thing closest to media that they had were coins, coins. Many of them would never see anything else printed, no other image. The only image they would ever see would be Roman coins. The only thing they'd ever seen was a coin with the image of an emperor on it. And at the time that this letter was written, there was a brand new emperor in town named Nero. And he rose to power with a ton of acclaim. It ended real bad. Google it. But he rose to power with a ton of acclaim. And his image was on every coin. If you were blessed enough to have a coin in Colossae, his image was on every coin. You know what it said on every coin with Nero's head? It said things like this. Lord of lords, king of kings, son of God. The only message they'd ever seen given to them, the only image of God that they'd been given to them was an image of Nero or another emperor on a coin that said, he is the one who rules all things, who's above all things, who's in all things. All things are held together by the Roman Empire and this man in particular, a man that you will never meet, you will never see, and he doesn't care about you because he's never coming to this small town, but he's in charge of your whole life. So now what does Paul say? Paul says, oh no, Nero's not the one 
who is above all things and holds all things together. Jesus Christ is the one who holds all things together. He is the image, the icon, same word used to describe the side of a coin. He's the image of God, not Nero on a coin. You want to know who God is, who the Lord of Lords is? It's Jesus Christ. He's the one who's above all things, before all things, holds all things together. He crafted everything, creation. He's putting this thing together called the church. And you know what? He even used all of his power and all of his might to claim you to save you, and to guarantee a future for you. I know the rest of the world thinks you're nobody, but the one who actually rules the world has called you by name and made you his own. If you're a member of this small church and that moment in history, that is an overwhelming, mind-blowing thought. And that's Paul's message to them, and it's his message to you. So then the question is, how does this change things for us? Well, that's what he spends the rest of the book expounding. If Jesus Christ is the artist behind all things and his hands are upon your life and he's made you a saved and secure person, how does this change you? That's what he spends the rest of the book talking about. But but I'll give you a hint. Here's how it should change you. I think you should be wrestling with this question, by the way. If all that is true, if the gospel is true, how does my life need to be different today? I think that's a daily question for us. If the gospel is true, how now should I live? And the New Testament, Jesus is in particular, but the New Testament goes to great lengths to say basically this. I'll summarize it like this. That since Jesus Christ is before all things and holds all things together and his hands are upon your life and you are one of his works of art, because of that, you are free to live with both boldness and joy. A particular boldness, a boldness to obedience, a boldness to obedience to King Jesus. You've been given his spirit, it's the promise of Pentecost. God's spirit lives within you. The spirit of Christ is within you, empowering you to know what is noble, what is good, what is lovely, what is pure, what is good for your neighbor, what is glorifying to God. You know the life that you're called to live, that you get to live as a result of being saved, as a result of being secure in your future. You know the life that you're called to live. And yet so often we refuse to do it. The thing we should do, we refuse to do. But you've been called into obedience. What is the thing that you have known for some time now that as a follower of Jesus, you need to be about, or you need to let go of, or you need to address, you need to accomplish. And why haven't you done that thing? You have been called into this life. You have been made by Jesus so that you might be obedient. Be the piece of work, the piece of art (laughs) that declares his glory to the entire world. What is the obedience that you have been avoiding? And you are called to joy. Joy being that that deeply rooted happiness mixed with peace. The joy of knowing that even if obedience costs you everything, the reward is secure. The joy of knowing that you are not just a bunch of atoms bouncing around in a pointless universe, but that the one who is Lord of all knows your name. In fact, he has written his name in the corner of your canvas. You are his. Claimed by him, made by him, recreated and eternal through him. That kind of joy. Have you been letting things or people or circumstances steal your joy? You don't have to. 
How should life be different now that everything's different through Jesus Christ, knowing that we are a work of his hands? Live with boldness and joy. We're going to dive into this more in the weeks to come as we work through the rest of this letter. I encourage you to read ahead. It's only four chapters. It takes about 15 minutes to read. It's great. But, but I'll close with this. I'll come back to my original, my original wondering, my original question. Why can't I be a great artist? I'd love to make things with my own two hands to make the rest of the world go, wow, that's incredible. Did Popovitz do that? Man, he's something else. But you know what the next best thing to being an artist, maybe even better than being the artist? Next best thing is being the masterpiece. And, that, and that's really ultimately, if you take away anything, that's Paul's point here. That Jesus Christ is the artist behind it all, and you are one of, if not the, masterpiece that he has made. And the great thing about being the masterpiece is that you know you are. You know that you are expertly crafted. You are intimately, personally known. You are priceless in value. And you radiate the glory of the one who made you. More next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, God himself, God in flesh, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this reminder that we are in him and through him and for him. That the same one who made all things made us that he is in us and we are in him. That God is not distant or distracted or angry or vengeful or simply applauding and largely uncaring. No, he is, he is looking after us. He loves us, he has crafted us, he's made us, he's given us his spirit. And he's given us a purpose to take the confidence that comes with knowing that we are, we are the work of an all-powerful, all-personal God in Jesus Christ. To take that confidence of knowing that, that we, have saved, we have been saved and we are secure in our future. To take that confidence and to, to live it out in a life of obedience and a life of joy. Help us to discern what joyful obedience looks like today, this afternoon, tonight tomorrow morning. Help this not to be some kind of vague, vague teaching about how we're loved by Jesus, but instead help it to, help it to fuel us into something concrete today. Different words we could say, different choices we could make, different ways in which we could love so that we might be joyfully obedient, flowing from the knowledge that we are fearfully, wonderfully made by Jesus. In whose name we pray.